for our sermon today, we're looking at Psalm 46. And as we have just gone before God, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy, to lay before him the things that are on our hearts and our minds, let's reflect together on how much comfort, how much joy, how much peace we have in the Lord. So hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now let's pray. Lord of hosts, you have said that you're with us. And we trust that you are here right now by your spirit and that we can be in your presence because you sent your only son Jesus Emmanuel God with us and so we thank you for your presence here and we ask that you would guide our thoughts and our hearts as we look at your word change us O Lord for your glory amen What is it that disquiets you? Who here knows what doom scrolling is? One, one person. Come on. All right. Some, if you don't know, don't worry. I can explain it. It's a term that describes the experience of reading a stream of comments by random internet people, usually about something that makes you upset and you just can't stop scrolling. You should be going to bed or getting out of bed or walking the dog or whatever, but you just feel stuck until you see all the bad news and everything that anybody had to say about it. But technology is just making something old available in new ways. Really, humans have been having this kind of experience ever since there was bad news to share. And that goes all the way back to the first chapters of Genesis. So for you, whether it's online or in the news on TV or somewhere else, what is it that habitually preoccupies your mind? What topic is it that's most likely to suck you in, to grab your attention and hold it? 
Whatever it is that troubles each one of us, there's likely fear involved. Oh no, what's going to happen? And maybe, often, anger. I can't believe this is happening. Why is it that our attention is grabbed and held by what makes us angry or afraid? What is it that makes us rage like the nations in this psalm? These things happen because the world around us and our sinful hearts inside us shape our attention this way. But God's people don't need to be people of rage or even of fear. And today's psalm teaches us why we do not need to be people of fear or rage. And it teaches us how to cease being so. And like any good Presbyterian, the psalmist here has given us a three-point message. It's right there in the text. You can see it. And it's even got an application at the end. So here's how I've summarized those three points for us today. First, God is here. Do not fear. Second, God is so big. Third, let God fill your vision. So God is here. Do not fear. It's the first stanza of this psalm. And if we look at this first statement, it's already a shock to the assumptions that a lot of people have. Notice a couple things it doesn't say. It doesn't say, God is our refuge, so we don't have trouble. It doesn't say, God is our refuge and strength and rescues us from trouble. The text here assumes that we have trouble. And it promises that God protects us and gives us strength within the trouble. So what kind of a refuge is God? What kind of strength does he provide if the text assumes that we are already in trouble? To answer this question, consider how the psalmist draws out the implication here. Therefore, that's a word that tells us there's some logical thing happening. There's an implication and we need to look at it. Therefore, we will not fear. So God is a refuge. He provides strength such that we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the type of refuge that God is for us is not a refuge that prevents the whole earth from giving way or that prevents the mountains from being cast into the sea. Consider that for the Hebrews, the mountains were symbolic of the strongest, firmest things on the earth. And the sea symbolizes unknown depths of uncontrolled chaos. So for the Hebrews, this idea of the mountains being cast into the sea is the idea of the most stable created thing being reduced to chaos. In the creation narrative at the beginning of Genesis, God's spirit is hovering over the waters and he causes dry land to appear. This is bringing order, firmness, out of chaos, out of the waters. And here in Psalm 46, the verse is giving us a picture of the unmaking of creation. And we will not fear, though creation itself should be unmade. Now, I don't know about you, but if creation gets unmade, I'm probably not going to be doing too well, right? But still, we need not fear. God is the type of refuge that means we can actually be at peace in the midst of horrible, creation-unmaking-scale chaos. How can this be? 
how can we be at peace in the midst of a horrible creation, unmaking scale chaos? It's because God is very present. The psalmist reminds us three times in this psalm that God is with us. In verse one, it says, God is a very present help. In verses seven and 11, there's a chorus, a refrain repeated, the Lord of hosts is with us. For the original audience, for the ancient Israelite, God was present in the Ark of the Covenant, or later he was present in the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber of the temple. And those were special, very carefully controlled, set apart ways that God was present with his people. But all of that was a foretaste of God being intimately present in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, a word which means God with us. And the New Testament is full of promises that Jesus is present with us still through his spirit. Philippians 4, 5 through 7, we already heard it once this morning. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It seems crazy to rejoice in the Lord always, right? It seems crazy to rejoice in the Lord if creation itself is being unmade. If the entire world and your entire life is plunged into chaos. But Paul and the psalmist are giving us reasons to rejoice anyway. So why is it not crazy to rejoice in the Lord no matter what? Because the Lord is at hand. He's here. He's with us. We can recognize the chaos around us and in our own hearts, and we can take that and give it over to God in everything. Write prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And because Jesus said he would be with us, even to the very end of all things, we can trust that he hears our prayers. He hears our supplications. And he promises that God has peace available to us. Peace that surpasses understanding. It's inexplicable. We can't explain it. And God offers us that peace to guard our hearts and minds. We can't spend more time on Philippians 4 today, but because the Lord is with us, because the Lord is at hand, it's reasonable to rejoice on the basis of peace that is beyond explanation. Summing it up, because it's quite a contrast, our always rejoicing is reasonable precisely because our peace is beyond reason. And Psalm 46 points us to this peace in terms of a river. God is so big and so full of peace. In the first stanza, the psalmist took us, as it were, to an unsteady cliff overlooking a raging sea and told us that God is our refuge even there. And now the psalmist evokes another cultural metaphor of water. Instead of a raging sea, a calm and soothing river, a babbling brook of life. 
there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is a picture of absolute, perfect, uninterrupted, nourishing, joyful beauty. The image of the river is familiar throughout scripture. We can see it in Psalm 1, as the man of God is like a tree with deep roots, nourished by the stream, regardless of what the weather is like above the ground. And like that river, this river in Psalm 46 is good and safe and steady. So hold this thought. The river is good, because we're going to come back to it as the psalm concludes. With this idea of how big God is, look at verse 6. It's this wonderful little picture all in a capsule. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. It's a tiny little word picture that really stands on its own. But in the context of this psalm, it's doing so much more. The nation's rage. As I meditated on that, I couldn't help thinking of the Battle of Helm's Deep, especially if you've seen the movie The Two Towers. In the book that Tolkien wrote, it's just a couple of pages, but in the movie, you've got 45 minutes with hordes of screaming orcs waving weapons and surging toward the wall defended by the heroes. It's a big scene. And it goes on so long. It's this cacophony of sound and rage that just overwhelms your senses, even in a comfortable theater seat. Now picture that at a national scale. Tens of thousands screaming at tens of thousands, raging in battle together. And what does the psalmist say results from all this mighty unleashing of rage? Eh, the kingdoms totter. Man does his worst, and what results? The kingdoms, not even a real thing. Kingdoms aren't a physical thing. It's an abstraction. It's a concept, and they just, eh, they get jiggled a bit. In late July, not even a month ago, Taylor Swift fans at her concert in Seattle got so enthusiastic that their dancing actually vibrated the earth in the equivalent of an earthquake, measuring 2.3 on the Richter scale. That's pretty impressive. That's really quite amazing. But think, it took 70,000 people at that concert, acting kind of in unison, right? There's music, so they're kind of unified about the music, to register a 2.3. So what does a 2.3 on the Richter scale do? Well, it turns out they happen all the time, and we usually can't feel them. Seismologists estimate, because it's really hard to measure them, that they happen millions of times per year. There might be a 2.3 scale earthquake happening right here, right now. The kingdoms totter. But that's the setup. The payoff is the contrast that comes next. The hottest rage of the nation causes kingdoms to totter, but God merely needs to utter his voice, and the earth melts. All the nations can do is feebly manipulate the stuff that's already here. Reality itself is subject to the mere voice of God. The psalmist is drawing us a picture. We start, as it were, looking at some nations at war, realizing that for all their noisy tumult, the result, in the end, is almost unnoticeable. But then we zoom way, way back out, and we realize that what filled our vision previously, these raging nations, is really... It's very, very small on a cosmic scale. And there's God holding the world, as it were, in the palm of his hand. And he could just whisper. 
and the entire thing would collapse into formlessness. The psalmist is reminding us of the scale of things. God is the creator, so even if the earth itself should collapse into chaos, we know he's powerful and we can trust him no matter what. And so we need to let God fill our vision. And there's an interesting difference as you read this psalm, because now suddenly we come to some imperative sentences. The psalmist has an application for us. Come, he bids us, behold the works of the Lord. Be still, he bids us, and know that God is God. Up to this point, Psalm 46 has been making assertions about God and creation. It's been meditating turning around the diamond, looking at all the different facets, as it were, meditating on chaos and order, protection and safety. But these sentences are different. They're telling us what to do. You can think of it just using the verbs. Come, behold, be still. Sometimes folks get confused about the idea of meditation because the same word gets used for some very different ideas. The easiest example to point to, in my opinion, is when Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Luke Skywalker to empty your mind of all thought. Let the force flow through you. And with due appreciation to George Lucas for his storytelling, that's really thin gruel. That's a westernized pseudo-Buddhism sort of thing. And generally speaking, Eastern meditation practices from Buddhism, from what we call Hinduism, and even from their feeble Western approximations in the New Age movement, they all involve this kind of self-emptying. But that's not what the psalmist is telling us to do here. The psalmist does not say, be still and empty your mind. The psalmist says, come, behold the works of the Lord, be still and know. Christian meditation, Christian stillness is a way of filling our minds with thoughts. Thoughts of who God is and how he relates to us and we to him. The Hebrew word translated come is yalach and refers to walking. So imagine walking through a battlefield after the fighting is done. Again, I can't help but picture hobbits looking for their friends, but you can pick your own movie scene if that helps. So you're walking through the battlefield past corpses of men and horses, burning chariots and catapults, swords bent in the mud, cracked shields, spears that are sharper now on the backside because the handle's shattered. And as you walk through this carnage and desolation, what do you feel? You might feel survivor's guilt because you're alive. You don't know if your friends are. You might feel exhausted by the stress and the tension. You might not be able to help asking yourself, what's the point? What was it all for? The battle raged, the armies clashed, and what's the result? A kingdom might have tottered just a little bit. But in this picture, in the stillness after battle, the psalmist tells you and me to still ourselves as well. Still your racing heart, your racing mind, your anxious heart. Remember that God is the power above all powers. He's the power above the power of the armies. Know that he is God, not the enemy king, not the nation with the biggest war budget. Know that God is exhausting the implements of battle, 
and bringing war itself to a final conclusion. Let's look at this word, end. The word end is ambiguous in English. We could say end of the earth and be referring to the furthest point away from us. Or, since it's a globe, right? Furthest point away comes back to me. In other words, the entire earth. We could say end of the earth and be referring to the finality of time, when earth as we know it ceases to be. In a similar way, the Hebrew word used here for end covers both the ideas of physical and temporal extremity. So the text is telling us that God is bringing war itself to a final conclusion, a final conclusion for the whole earth and in the end of time. So for now, there are very real enemies and wars still rage. But remember, who is it that's, that's on your side? God, who's protecting you far beyond this temporary battlefield. He's got earth-melting power at his fingertips. And he has promised to be your refuge and my refuge in the end, at the uttermost extremity. Things may be very difficult in many places in the meantime, but we can be confident that God has the long range in view. And he has the full power and authority to bring about perfect peace. Recall that the psalmist has set up two different contrasts. Contrast one, on the one hand we have nations with very limited power even over themselves, and on the other hand we have God who has unlimited power over reality itself. Contrast two, on the one hand we have chaos like the sea, on the other hand we have calm order like the good river that makes God's city glad. And here at the end the psalmist draws the meditation together and the contrasts are resolved because we know that in the end, the chaotic raging of the nations will cease and be transformed into orderly praise. Know that in the end, all the chaos that is still affecting even the earth will cease and be transformed into orderly praise. We've been focused on more of a macro scale here, battles of nations looking at the whole earth, nations raging. But the same principles are true even for families and for individuals. Do we rehearse fear and outrage in our hearts? Or do we notice fear and outrage and turn them over to the Lord because he's God? We started with this idea of doom scrolling, literally an experience of being unable to stop an experience of being unable to be still. And we noted that fear and anger are two of the main drivers of that kind of restlessness. We can be afraid of what may happen. We can learn of the raging of nations and let rage well up in us in response. And the psalmist here is calling us to stop scrolling through our fears and raging like the nations and to focus intently instead on the works of the Lord. Remember that river? The one in Psalm 1, and I think it's the same one here in Psalm 46. We also talked about a river in our scripture reading, the book of Revelation. We can actually soak our feet in that river now. So how do you do that? How do we soak our feet in that river? We soak our feet in that good, nourishing, beautiful river when we delight in God's word. 
Psalm 46 tells us to behold the works of the Lord. For the psalmist, the works of the Lord at that time would have been creation, calling of Israel, the exodus from Egypt, safe deliverance to the promised land. For the psalmist, there was the promise of the Savior, and that was a forward-looking thing. But for us, the promised Savior has come. He's provided true everlasting peace between us and God. Now we know how God is our refuge. Jesus took the eternal wrath of God so that we are safe. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, has already taken the punishment that we were due because of our sin, and now he defends us. Scripture is so rich in metaphors, it's hard not to mix them, so I apologize, but God is our refuge because we are clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. When we pay careful attention to God's word, when we ask him to fill us with his spirit, then our eyes are open and we can see the beauty of his word and the beauty and the glory of God himself. And God's beauty is more compelling to our hearts than the world's ugliness. God's power is more transfixing than the rage of nations. There are still battles raging. We've not yet reached the end of the earth. We happen to live in a time and place here where physical battles, like those the psalmist is picturing here, are not raging, except on screens for our entertainment or perhaps in other nations far away. But the battle for our souls still rages. The battle for our attention still rages. The battle to keep us afraid still rages. The battle to keep us raging still rages. Be still and know that he is God. He will be exalted among the nations, even ours. He will be exalted in all the earth. So it's not crazy to rejoice in the Lord always. By his presence, through his word and his spirit, he gives us peace that is beyond reason, so that it is, in fact, reasonable to rejoice in him no matter what. We have no need to let our attention be dominated by a zoomed-in picture filled with the rage of nations. Instead, daily, let us make it a habit, a practice, to zoom way out, like the psalmist, and fill our vision instead with God's mighty power, God our refuge, God our very present help. And let's go before him now in prayer. Lord, we delight in the fact that you are our refuge. We pull those robes of righteousness around us tightly. We are so thankful that you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ and that we are protected and that we can rest in you. And so we turn our hearts and our thoughts to you and we ask that you would grant us your spirit richly, filling our hearts and minds with thoughts of you, with trust in you, with affection for you, with remembrance of your word. Help us to dwell on your word, to dwell in your word and in your promises at all times and in all circumstances. 
that you would be glorified in us because we're so filled with thanksgiving and praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask all of these things. Amen.